2 Kings. We are going to be concluding this week and next our study in the life and ministry of Elisha. We're going backwards a little bit. We had a change of schedule at the end of the year, and, and so we didn't have a chance to look at chapter 6, verses 24 through 720. This is a glorious text. If you're not familiar with it, I'm excited that you get a chance to hear it, to read it, to meditate upon it this morning. It's a perfect text as we close out one year and begin a new year to be reminded of who our God is, who we are, uh, his grace, his power. So hear God's word, 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, reading through chapter 7, verse 20. Now afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? from the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. Now they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. 
And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who've already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now, the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel. About this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, we praise you that you have spoken, that you have not left us ignorant of who you are, of who we are, of your ways with us. Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes, even this morning, that we would see wonderful, marvelous things in your word. Give us faith to believe your truth. Give us grace, O oh Lord, to walk in its light. We thank you for this day that you have set apart, that we might gather together to sit at your feet, to hear your spirit teach us from your word. Would you come, cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my Christmas gifts this year was a book entitled A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? It's a book by a couple named Kelly and Zach Wienersmith. Now, I've always had an interest in the history and the future of space travel. I'm sure it was because I grew up, you know, watching the first Star Wars, Star Wars trilogy. 
Uh, and over the last few years, if you've noticed, uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have talked a lot about, we're going to Mars, right? We're going to be there in the next 20, 25 years. We're going to settle a colony for all, all sorts of different reasons that folks have to, to go to, to Mars. And they're not just talking about, they are putting large sums of money right, toward uh, this project. And so when I heard about this book, I knew that I wanted to read it. It is, it is a humorous yet serious dose of realism. Right, exploring the known and the unknown issues with space settlement. Things like, what's it going to do to our body right, to live in zero gravity? Uh, how are we going to live in space? What are we going to eat? How are we going to raise little space babies? How are earth politics and interplanetary realities going to, to mix and match? And so from economics to biology to psychology to uh, politics, uh, a bunch of other fun questions that, that this book considers. Now, now, here's the thing you have to know about this book. The authors are not opposed to space settlement. They want it to happen, but they are skeptical that it can be done wisely in the next 25 years, or that it can be done in sort of a little by little, piecemeal, incremental uh, manner. Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to be skeptical about what other human beings can do, as rich as they might be. It's a complete other thing to be skeptical of what the living God can do. And that's what we find in our text this morning. The suffering of this siege and this famine brings in its wake the temptation to unbelief and to doubt. And not just doubt, but also to selfish disobedience and to hopeless despair. But this passage also reminds us that the Lord, the God of Israel, nothing is impossible for him. And so as we embark upon a new year tomorrow, one of the things that I can absolutely guarantee will happen to you is that you will suffer. You will experience affliction and trial at some point during this year. And the question that will be laid before you is how will you respond? Will you respond with disobedience and doubt and despair? Or will you respond with a patient and an obedient faith that believes what God says in his word about himself, no matter what your eyes might be telling you. This morning, I want you to see two things from our passage. And the first is this, suffering tempts us to disobedience, to despair, and to doubt. After a brief respite from war with Syria, Ben-Hadad had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel here in our passage. He came all the way up to the gates of the capital city of Samaria. He laid siege to it. The land was devastated by famine. According to the basic economic principles of supply and demand, scarcity had led to higher prices, more and more people chasing fewer and fewer goods. And eventually the author of Kings tells us, that people were willing to spend 80 shekels of silver for the privilege of eating an undesirable part of an animal that was ceremonially unclean for them, a donkey, right? It, it was not unclean for them to eat, and they were willing to eat the head of it. Right? For five shekels, they could also have doves dung. Now, we don't know if that was to eat, if that was to cook over, or if it was sort of a euphemism for the inedible husk of, of seeds, sort of like you paying a lot of money for peanut shells, right? That's all you have, peanut shells to eat. 
If you know our own state's history, if you've ever visited the Vicksburg National Military Park, then you know that uh, in 1863, for 47 days, General Ulysses S. Grant besieged the city. Uh, there was a captain named Ferdinand Claiborne of the 3rd Maryland Battery, and he writes this in his diary. Our rations are growing more scarce every day, and we must eventually come to mule meat. We have a great, we have a, not a great, we have a quantity of bacon yet on hand, but breadstuff is the great desire, he says. The men receive only one quarter rations of breadstuff, such as rice, black-eyed pea meal, and rice flour. The corn is given out long since. Rations of sugar, lard, molasses, tobacco are issued, but this does not make amends for the want of bread. And the men are growing weaker every day. Near the end, history tells us before General Pemberton surrendered on the 4th of July, soldiers and civilians alike were eating mules as well as rats, which you could buy at the market for $2.50. We understand how siege leads to to famine. But thankfully in Vicksburg, they they weren't doing what was done in Samaria. You see it there in verse 26. It's a tragic scene of desperation and of disobedience. One day the king, unnamed, but most likely Ahab's son, Jehoram, he's walking on the walls. A lady cries out to him for help. He knows he can do nothing to help her, but he asks her anyway what her trouble was. She replies that she had entered into this horribly gruesome and sinful bargain with another woman to kill and eat their two sons. They had already boiled her son, but when the day came to eat the other lady's son, the boy was nowhere to be found. Can you imagine this lady's suffering? Can you imagine her grief? Can you imagine her guilt? She had valued her own life more than the life of her child, more than obedience to God's law. Just like the two women who had the dispute over the crushed son brought their case to Solomon, so this woman goes to Jehoram for wisdom and for justice, and instead she receives the exact same murderous intent that she had just dealt out to her own son. You see it there. Jehoram says, off with his head, off with Elisha's head, and he sends a messenger to kill the prophet. Now, maybe you read that, you're like, that's weird. Why would he blame Elisha for what is going on here? We don't know exactly. Perhaps Elisha had had warned Jehoram that this famine and siege were God's judgment for Israel's idolatry. And and maybe Elisha had counseled the king, look, don't give the city over to the Syrians, but repent and, and wait on the Lord to deliver you. You notice there the king is is wearing the, the sackcloth, the garments of repentance under his kingly gown. But clearly, things were only getting worse and worse, and so it was time to shoot the messenger. Right? It's time to kill Elisha. We see that Jehoram's repentance was only skin deep. Right? It was only on the surface of his body. There was no true heart of sorrow and hatred for sin. But, but he does at least seem to have, have, have regretted and had second thoughts about his hasty order to kill Elisha. He, he comes to Elisha's house to stop the execution The text is a bit unclear, but it does appear at the end of chapter 6 that the king is present for this conversation. Either way, the the words of chapter 6, verse 33, express Jehoram's heart of hopeless despair. This trouble is from the Lord, he says. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, Jehoram's premise is sound, isn't it? But his conclusion is wrong. 
The, the trouble was indeed from the Lord. The Lord is the one who had brought this about. He had given his people over to siege. He had given his people even over to cannibalism as judgment for their sin of idolatry. Here and throughout the book of Kings, God is carrying out the covenant curses that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to just this few verses. In Deuteronomy 28, we read this, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. They shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord his God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. You see, God's word is coming to pass because of the sin of his people, because of their idolatrous hearts that had found satisfaction and joy in the creature rather than the creator. God is giving his people over to the consequences of their sin. He is causing them to suffer these consequences. Why? In order that they might return to him in repentance and faith. But rather than repenting, what do we see here? Rather than seeing this suffering as a wake-up call to turn from idolatry back to the living God, we see Jehoram despairing of waiting on God, despairing of trusting in the Lord, weary of looking to him and seeking him in repentance and faith, tired of turning away from sin. It's despair on top of disobedience. And Jehoram's hard attitude is reflected in those who are the closest to him. When Elisha responds to Jehoram's words with his promise of deliverance from famine, notice how the king's captain responds. It's with this brazen and sarcastic unbelief. If the Lord himself Right, should make windows in heaven. Could this thing be? There's no way. This is the most ridiculous thing you've ever said, Elisha. The captain is doubting the power of God, filled with unbelief in the Lord's ability to deliver, filled with unbelief in his willingness to deliver, in his grace to show goodness and mercy in spite of what is actually deserved. Elisha declares cryptically that he will see it with his own eyes, but he will not eat of it. Disobedience, despair, doubt. If we are honest this morning, we know that these sinful responses to the suffering that we see in this story are the responses that tempt us as well, are they not? How easy it is to use our suffering as an excuse to disregard the commandments of the Holy One of Israel. How prone we are when walking through suffering to despair of waiting on the Lord to stop trusting the Lord to show us his goodness in the land of the living in his time and in his way. How easy it is to grow bitter and angry and impatient. And rather than our trials leading us to humble repentance and faith, they lead us away from him in cynicism and skepticism and sarcasm. They lead us to further unbelief that limits the love of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God. But that brings us to the other thing that this text 
shows us. You see, not only do we see suffering tempting us to disobedience and despair and doubt, but we see the glorious truth that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible to God. In response to the king's despair, as we said, Elisha had declared this word of the Lord that on the next day, they would be able to buy flour and barley again in the market. It wouldn't necessarily be as cheap as it normally was right away, but it would be available. Now to the captain, this sounded preposterous, but it happens. And it happens in a way so unexpected, so ironic, so powerful, and yet seemingly so weak. God doesn't literally open the windows of heaven and dump out a bunch of wheat and barley on Samaria, but by both supernatural and natural means, the sovereign God mysteriously works behind the scenes to relieve his suffering people from their distress. Supernaturally, you see it. He causes the Syrians to hear a sound, multiple sounds that are not really there, right? They hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, which they imagine is the Hittite army, the Egyptian army, marching out to battle on behalf of the Israelites. In fear, they flee away and they, they leave everything behind. That's how afraid they were by this fake sound, right? this delusion of the ears that, that God miraculously created. But, but think about this. All the provisions of the Syrians that God had ordained to be for his people, they would have remained there out on the ground were it not for these natural means of deliverance, these four lepers and this unnamed servant. At the very same time the Syrians are fleeing camp at the, at the twilight toward the evening, these four lepers are making their way to the Syrian camp, right? They had done the math. Uh, they had figured it was better to face an uncertain future in the hands of Syrians than to go and look for food inside the city of Samaria. They happen upon this camp, the camp of the Syrian army. It's full of stuff, but empty of soldiers. They eventually bring word back to the king but as you might expect, the king interprets it not as fulfilling Elisha's word, but as a military ruse on the part of Ben-Hadad. But, but notice in the text, a nameless servant, we don't know who this guy was, but he pushes back against the king's skepticism and he convinced him, look, at least let's go and check. The word of Elisha is fulfilled and God provides for his people in grace and in power. Grace, why? Because they certainly don't deserve this provision. But power, because God feeds them. He is the one who feeds them when they were unable to feed themselves. In the words of Matthew Henry, man's extremity is God's opportunity of magnifying his own power. Nothing is too difficult with God, the text is teaching us. Nothing is impossible for God. And this truth is communicated several times throughout the Bible, and perhaps you're familiar with some of them. You remember back in Genesis 18, God himself declares this when Sarah, 90-year-old Sarah, laughs in her heart that she will bear a son. And God says, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? And then God says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. We see the same truth taught us in Numbers chapter 11. God again declares to Moses this time, 
When Moses had doubted God's ability to give meat to the people to eat in the wilderness, just like the captain Moses had said this, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you've said I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Now, if you were God and Moses had spoken to you in that sarcastic tone of voice, how would you have responded? And yet, how does God respond? He says, is the Lord's hand shortened? Is my hand powerless? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. The same truth is taught us in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah prophesying just before the Babylonians came and besieged Jerusalem and took the city into exile. But right before that happened, God told Jeremiah to go buy some land in the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah prays to the Lord and says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. But I'm really confused why you want me to buy land in a city that's about to be destroyed. But he acknowledged nothing is too difficult for you. The angel declared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, when he told of Elizabeth's pregnancy, though she had been barren, nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus himself declares it in Matthew 19, when he tells the disciples how difficult it will be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are astonished and say, well, then who can be saved if rich people can't be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's this drum roll, this drumbeat throughout the scriptures. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He is able to fulfill his word. And not only his word of mercy, but also his word of justice. Isn't it interesting how this text ends, repeating again multiple times this captain's unbelief and the way that the Lord punished him. As Israel is plundering the camp of the Syrians, the captain, ironically, is stationed at the very gate where flour and barley are being sold at the prices that he had thought would be impossible. And in the mass of people seeking to get food, he is crushed by the crowds. He saw the word of God fulfilled with his own eyes, but he did not get to enjoy the blessing. Now, how do we apply this text to our own life? We have to be careful, don't we? The takeaway of this of this point, that nothing's impossible with God. The takeaway is is not that you need to believe that God is is necessarily going to do crazy miracles for you to to provide for you financially in the the most unlikely of ways, right? God is going to drop all sorts of cash down in your bank account tonight. That's not how God wants us to apply this text. The point that God is making is that we as his people are to believe his word to believe his word of promise, to put our trust in the word of God who is full of mercy and full of power. Nowhere has God promised that if you believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will no longer have financial difficulties. That's not the promise of God. But what is the promise of God? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you will have an abundance for every good deed. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Or Matthew 6, 
Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food and drink and clothing, will be added to you. The Lord has promised in Hebrews 13, 5, that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us so that our character can be free from the love of money. We can be content with what we have. Or think of these promises. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, that in Jesus Christ you have died to sin. Sin shall not be master over you. Therefore, you do not need to let sin reign over you. You can have confidence in your sanctification and your growth and grace. I think about the promise of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he has promised you that in temptation he is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. What a glorious promise that we can take to the bank that truth. God is faithful. Or Philippians 1, 23, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reminds us that if we die, we will be present with Jesus. And in the last day, we will receive an imperishable body. Our God, brothers and sisters, has all power to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Will you believe that this year? Will you live in the light of these truths, these promises of God's word? When you suffer this coming year, rather than disobeying, despairing, doubting, See the God for whom nothing is impossible. The God who could open windows in heaven if it be his will. Rather than listening to yourself, your own heart, the lies of the devil, speak the truth of God's word to your heart hour by hour. How does the psalmist do it in Psalm 42? He speaks to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You see, we are called to interpret our circumstances, not according to our own unbelief, but to interpret them through the truth of God, the promise of God. We are to remember Sarah who, after she laughed, Hebrews 11 tells us that she considered God faithful who had promised. Or Abraham who, when he was told to sacrifice Isaac, he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, Hebrews 11 tells us. And Romans 4 says that, that Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. This is the faith to which the Lord calls us. God is able. Nothing is too difficult for him. And above all, most of all, we're called to remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you think this story is incredible, if you think this story is unbelievable, is too good to be true, then consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and all of these, the power of God, the grace of God are joined together to accomplish the salvation of sinners who put their trust in him. The Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth in order to live a sinless life, to die for all of our disobedience, for all of our despairing, for all of our doubting, 
He was willingly crushed by the justice of God, even as this captain was crushed by the people. And Jesus did that so that we would have spiritual bread, not for some cost, but freely, without money, without cost. We bry this bread of life. And what is faith but the empty hand receiving what it knows that does not deserve? And then going out as one beggar, or we might say one hungry leper who has been fed telling other beggars where it found bread. May the Lord give us grace to go forth into the world this year, walking by faith, walking in faith, suffering in faith, praying in faith, sharing the gospel in faith, not looking at ourselves, but looking to the Lord our God, for whom nothing is impossible, who can do all things for his people in Jesus Christ. May the Lord grant us repentance and faith day by day this new year as we suffer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for telling us this story so that we might be warned of all the pitfalls and traps that accompany suffering, that we might be pointed to see you in all of your glory and all of your power and all your grace. Lord, we ask that you would grant to us a faith that believes your word. No matter what happens, no matter what might be our lot this coming year, Lord, help us to know, to believe, to remember who you are, to cling to that, to know that you will indeed hold us fast, that you work in mysterious ways, your wonders to perform. Lord, we ask that you would give to us the grace of your spirit, that we might boldly proclaim your goodness, your mercy to sinners who turn to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Would you be with us this new year? Lord, would you give us grace to walk in obedience, to walk in joy, to walk in faith? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.